Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was originally given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, as a part of the Gospel of Matthew series. We left off last week with this haunting line in chapter 5, if you were here, uh, verse 20. Let's read it again. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, it's like the religious elite of the day, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you were not here last week and you're thinking, wait, what? What Jesus is saying here is that unless you move past religion in the pejorative sense of the word and the list of do's and don'ts, a kind of surface-level righteousness that is about behavior and no more. And, and make no mistake, behavior matters to Jesus a lot. Most of this is about behavior. But that surface level, unless if you move past that to a deeper level of righteousness that is about a heart that is transformed to love, where the driving motivation, the undercurrent of your life is love, then you will certainly not. There is no way for you to experience this new reality of the kingdom. And then next, from here to the end of chapter 5, Jesus lays out six case studies of this new kind of righteousness at a deeper level that he is after. And I forewarn you, like, it's straight out of days of our lives. Um, It's, like, so nitty and gritty and human and honest. Like, he deals with anger and the poison and the heart. He deals with lust and the objectification of other human beings, in particular women, for sexual gratification. He deals with divorce and how we break promise after promise. He deals with oaths, which is essentially how we use language to manipulate other people, and on down the list. First up on the docket for tonight is Jesus on anger. What does Jesus have to say about anger? Well, take a look at chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, and you know who you are, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Or settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. The judge may hand you over to the officer. You may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. On Tuesday morning, I got an email. So I have this little quirk. I only do email once a week because I hate it. And so every Tuesday morning, I sit down at my desk, and I refuse to get up until the inbox is at zero. So there... Waiting for me was an email from he who must not be named. And it was an email that made me really angry. And don't worry, it wasn't from anybody at Bridgetown, nothing to do with you. But um, it was an email that, in my humble opinion, was a breach of trust in a relationship with somebody else that really made my life difficult. And so I was mad. I was really mad. And uh, finished up my email, went about my day, but that anger was with me all week long, kind of at a low simmer in the back of my mind when I would get a little mental space before I would fall asleep at night or first thing in the morning when I would wake up or on my you know, bike ride into the office. It was just there in the back of my mind. Meanwhile, I'm working on a teaching on Jesus and anger. Exactly. And I'm wrecked by it. And here's why. Um, This is a common problem for me, anger. As you know, um, we are hosting an Enneagram conference, and the Enneagram is a theory of personality test, very similar to, say, Myers-Briggs or the DISC profile. But unlike those or strength finders, which really isn't helpful at all, you're awesome. I already know that, okay? Um, Unlike those, the Enneagram, like you get done with it and then you need about five years of therapy to mop up because it identifies your root sin and your root 
motivation, what it is your core need based on your personality. And what I love about the Enneagram and Apprenticeship to Jesus is it shows you here is an immature, unhealthy version of your personality, and here is a mature, healthy version of you. And here's the journey that you have to go on because your journey will be different than mine, will be different than your mom or your dad or your friend or your roommate based on your personality type and gender and stage of life, all of that. All that to say, each one of the nine Enneagram types are tied to one of the seven deadly sins of church history. And uh, who said woo? <laughs> Rebuke that spirit in the name of Jesus. And um, so, just to be transparent with you, so I am an Enneagram type one, because I have to be first, right? And now I'm a type one, and which is the perfectionist, or also known as the reformer. My uh, kind of driving motivation, my knee, core need, is the need to be perfect or the need to be good. So type ones are, you know, social reformers, ethicists from Aristotle to the Apostle Paul to Nelson Mandela. So I have this like, my therapist calls it x-ray vision, and he does not mean that as a compliment. I have this uncanny ability to see everything that's right and everything that's wrong with the situation with our church, with our city, with our generation, with my life, with my body, with that of my wife, with my children, with my community. I just have like x-ray vision, everything that's right and everything that's wrong. Now, because my core need is to be perfect and I live on planet Earth, I have a little bit of a problem on my hands, <laughs> right? Because the world I live in is anything but perfect. In fact, at times it's not even good. And so because of that, my root sin as a type one is anger. Um, I'm constantly angry and frustrated and upset and mad at the imperfect imperfection in the world and in my life and in my teaching. See, I just mispronounced the word imperfection, and I'm going to go home and think about that at night and get angry, all right, at myself or whatever. So that's, you're like, you seriously need therapy. I have it, and this is, this is me with therapy and Jesus and the Bible, and I work for him full time. This is... Wow, oh my gosh. All that to say, when I first discovered this, it was a few years ago, I was with my therapist, and I discovered that my root sin is anger. I thought, wait, what? I mean, I'm a pacifist. I bicycle to work. I think styrofoam is demonic. Like, how, how angry could I really be, right? But the thing is, my anger isn't like a punch a hole in the wall kind of anger. I would break my hand, and i play the piano, all right? My anger is a way worse problem. It's like a gut-level, visceral, with-me-all-the-time anger. I'm kind of like the Incredible Hulk. You remember that line? My secret is I don't get angry. I'm always angry. <laughs> and so I live with this slow-burn anger at the imperfection in the world and the lack of goodness in my life or your life or our life together, and it leaks out of my mouth. A sarcastic comment here, a dig there, a put down there, a shame statement here. And um, it's hurtful and it's harmful to people that I love. The people who bear the brunt of it, it's not the barista um, at the coffee shop or the airline attendant. Um, it's, it's my wife bears the brunt of it, who's here last hour, and my three children. And then out of there, it's our staff and people that I work with on a day-to-day -day basis. It's my Bridgetown community. It's my family who see up front this ugly part of my character that is still in process. And I've come a long ways. If you knew me 10 years ago, I've come a long ways, but I still have a long ways to go. So all that to say, as I was working on this, man, I was all ears. Okay, Jesus, what do you have to say? Because I want free from this. And unfortunately, when it comes to anger, I'm a bit of an expert on the subject. So I found Jesus' teaching here to be over-the-top helpful, and I hope that it is the same for you. Let's just work through it one line at a time with a lot of ground to cover, so I'll move a bit fast, and then um, we'll move into prayer. All right? Okay. Take a look again at chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago. That's what a rabbi in the first century said right before he was about to quote from the law and the prophets, or what we now call the Old Testament quote, you shall not murder, end quote, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, 
Uh, the first part of that, you shall not murder, is a verbatim quote from Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. It is number six on the Ten Commandments. That second half, whoever murders will be subject to judgment, is referring to all the commands in the law about what to do with murder or manslaughter or any kind of wrongful death. Now, at a surface level, this seems like a pretty straightforward command, right? Don't murder people. You all got that? Um, if when I read this, even as somebody with an anger problem, I think, yeah, like that's, I can, that's doable, no problem. <laughs> like, I, I'll, I'll make sure not to do that in the coming week. And, and this is the problem with the, quote, righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in the language of Jesus. It's a surface-level kind of righteousness that's about behavior, and it's easy to kind of check the box off the list. Yeah, I don't murder people. It's, it's so easy for me to think, I'm so much better than him or her. I'm not a murderer. Got it, Jesus. No problem. But watch what Jesus is up to. 22, but I tell you. Now, this was a little verbal formula used by rabbis in the first century. You have heard it said, but I tell you. And it's a way of saying, hey, you've heard it said, quote from the Old Testament. Here is a popular interpretation of how that command or whatever was read in Jesus' day. But I tell you, meaning here is actually the right way to read that command. So here's Jesus' little mini teaching on it. I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Okay, what is Jesus up to here? Well, what is anger? Anger is a spontaneous feeling that comes over our mind and body when our will is thwarted. When somebody or something stops what we want to happen from happening. Now, there are all types of anger, good and bad. There's the anger of a wounded ego, how dare you say that to me? The anger of a narcissistic, you think you're the center of the universe, but you're not. There's also the anger over injustice, where we get angry on behalf of those who have no voice, where there's oppression from those who are in power and authority. Um, there's anger, anger over evil in the world. Um, there's, like, there's all types of anger. There's the anger that is the byproduct of a, a trigger from emotional pain in your childhood or your family of origin. And by itself, anger is not necessarily a sin. In fact, there are times when anger is the emotionally healthy, mature response to evil. Jesus himself gets angry on more than one occasion, never about himself, always about other people. I love John Stott's definition of Jesus' anger, quote, his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. Love that. But that's healthy anger. And healthy or not, playing with anger is like playing with fire. There's a fine line between anger and sin. Paul puts it this way, be angry, but in your anger do not sin. Watch out for that. That's the healthy kind of anger. That's not what Jesus is teaching on here. But a lot of people misread Jesus and think that he's saying, hey, never get angry, as if he's kind of a Portland progressive who, like, you know, virtue number one is niceness, right? Even if it's not authentic, niceness. Hi, uh-huh. As if that's what Jesus is saying. Never get mad at anybody. Um, but pay close attention. Look down at your Bible again. Look at verse 22. Does Jesus command his followers to never get angry? Thank you. It's not a trick question. No. He doesn't command you or me anything. He just says, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. He doesn't command you not to get angry. First off, that would be impossible because anger is an emotion, not an action. We can't control our emotions. Influence them, absolutely. But control, no. So what exactly does Jesus say? Whoever is angry. Now, two things you need to know here because the English is a translation of the Greek. Um, one, there are two words in Greek for anger, thumos, which is like a temper. It's a quick flare-up anger. It's when, you know, you're cut off in traffic or whatever, or if your parent, you know, your six-year-old spills soda on the white carpet after you warning them for ten times, just hypothetical scenario. Um, something like that, or your roommate, like, again, there's like pizza in the oh, sink, like for the ninth night in a row or whatever. And it's just like this flare-up, like it's there, you're mad, and then five, ten minutes later, it's gone. But there's another word for anger in Greek, and it's orgesesthai, 
And it was a deeper kind of anger that you brood over, where you replay the offense in your mind's eye, and you get stuck there, and you won't move on. And pretty soon, even if you want to, you can't move on. It's like a grudge that you carry around. Now, both types of anger are lousy, but the second one is toxic. And that's the word used by Jesus here. Secondly, you need to know that in Greek, this is a participle, a present participle. Uh, for those of you that like, don't even care, more literally, it's whoever is being angry. Dale Bruner, one of the top scholars on Matthew, translates it that way, whoever is remaining angry, end quote. And he argues that if Jesus were speaking American, he would say something like, whoever is nursing a grudge. So here's what Jesus says. It's not never get mad. It's Whoever is angry, is nursing a grudge, kind of has a anger like a, a little square inch in his or her heart at a brother or a sister, somebody else in the community. doesn't mean, you know, it's okay to be angry at somebody outside of the community. What Jesus has in mind is somebody in the community uh, will be subject to judgment, meaning the exact same judgment as that of a murderer. And you're thinking, wait, What? Jesus goes on. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, racha. Now, racha was, a, was literally a four-letter word in Aramaic, Jesus' mother tongue. It was an epithet and a quasi-expletive. It means something like empty in the head. And it was an insult on the street. In fact, one translation has, quote, whoever insults his brother or sister. Now, today, unless if you are really a Bible nerd, you don't, like, say racha to people. Unless it, maybe if you're a seminary student or something like that, you're like, Raka professor or something like that. <laughs> but you might say, and you know, theoretically, you might say, you idiot, or you a-hole, or you dumb F, or something like that. <laughs> Whoever insults somebody like that, you toss out a word like that, Look at, is answerable to the court. Now, that word court is actually Sanhedrin in Greek, which was essentially the supreme court of ancient Israel and was thought to be, in that day and age, an earthly parallel to a heavenly reality. So this is really heavy language. We'll be answerable to the court. And Jesus is not done. And anyone who says, you fool. Now, the word here is mora in Greek. It's where we get the word moron. And, and it's... It's really interesting. It means somebody who is both unintelligent and immoral. So this word is used all through the Hebrew wisdom literature. For example, Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge, but fools, morons, despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 12, 16, the way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. Or here's one of my personal favorites, Proverbs 17, 28, even fools are thought wise if they keep silent. That's kind of good, huh? And you should put that in the Bible. And, and discerning if they hold their tongue. So there are some people who are fools, who are unintelligent and immoral. But when you call somebody that, when you say, you fool, okay, now notice you've upped the ante. You've moved from an insult, stupid, idiot, to a judgment call on the whole person from shaming their behavior to shaming their character itself. Keep in mind, ancient Near East, Israel, third century, this is an honor-shame culture, which I used to say we know nothing about, but actually America is fast becoming due to social media, celebrity culture, the political tenor. We're actually fast becoming that. It's an honor-shame culture where this, the idea here is you shame somebody. The rabbis had a saying, quote, three classes go down to Gehenna, or hell, and return not. The adulterer, he who puts his neighbor openly to shame, and he who gives his neighbor an insulting name. So it comes as no surprise that Jesus' next line is, anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, that phrase, fire of hell, I know that is a trigger um, for a lot of you. So just a quick word on it before we move on. The word hell, in all honesty, in English, is misleading because it has all sorts of connotations and imagery that my guess is in your mind's eye right now that may or may not be anywhere in the writings of the Old or the New Testament. So when you read The Fire of Hell, don't imagine in your mind's eye Dante's Inferno, like which was from somebody in the Middle Ages who was a really great writer in serious need of Prozac. 
Um, and don't imagine a hellfire and brimstone preacher down at PSU with a bullhorn and a sandwich board sign who's like in serious need of a doctor. Like don't set that aside. The word that's translated hell in the NIV is the word um, Gehenna. That's the kind of, or gen Gehenom in Hebrew. And it was actually a very real place in Jesus' day that all of Jesus' listeners would have known about. It was a valley on the south side of Jerusalem. In fact, I've actually been there. Uh, I did a graduate class in Jerusalem a number of years ago. I was there for a month. My first night in the old city, I went for a walk in hell. I actually took a picture of hell. And um, that bottom right-hand corner is, is the entrance right there to hell. So it's, it's, it's a bit of a remodel. It's a bit nicer now, apparently, than it was. And that's not to downplay it. So this is interesting history here. Historically, the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, or that's the word that is translated here, the Valley of Hell, was a valley right outside Jerusalem where ch- when, when Israel was at its worst, if you've ever read the Old Testament, when it's at its worst, you're like, which time? Well, like the worst worst. It was where children, innocent children, were slaughtered on behalf of the gods. And it's where King Josiah, in a nationwide renewal, if you want to go read Chronicles 34, where he slaughtered all of the pagan priests, and then he put a curse over the valley. So here's a few um, passages about hell in the Old Testament. 2 Chronicles 28, King Ahaz burned sacrifices in the valley of hell, the valley of Ben-Hanom, and sacrificed his children in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord has driven out before the Israelites. Or here's one from the prophet Jeremiah. Go out to the valley of Ben-Hanom. This is the exact same word that is used by Jesus, hell. There proclaim the words. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Listen, I'm going to bring a disaster on this place that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. For they have forsaken me and made this a place of foreign gods. They have burned incense in it to gods that neither they nor their ancestors nor the kings of Judah ever knew. And they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. They have built the high places of Baal, as a Canaanite deity, to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal, all in this valley of hell. Something I did not command nor mention nor did it enter my mind. So beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call this place Topheth, another name for it, or the valley of hell, Ben-Hanom, but the valley of slaughter. My point was, if you're a first century Jew and you're there in the crowd, hell was a very real place that you did not want to end up in. In fact, by Jesus' day, because of its history, it had, we think, become a garbage dump where refuse was burned 24 hours a day, Um, hence the language about the fire never goes out. This is millennia before waste management and recycling, okay? If you had garbage, you would toss it over the wall down into this valley on the south side of the city. Now, over time, here's why it matters. Over time, this valley became a word picture or a metaphor for the judgment to come, not only now, but later, not only in this age, but in the age to come. So don't think I'm, you know, I'm not here to explain away what Jesus is up to. Now, we don't have time to go down the rabbit trail that is hell. I keep meaning to like do a series on it. I just don't ever quite get the inspiration to do a four-part series on hell. But actually what the Bible says about hell, my guess is would surprise 90 plus percent of you, both on the right and on the left. It's very different than what most people think. But for today, I just want to make one point before we go on. You know, we have this language, particularly if you grew up in the church, about how God sends people to hell. I really don't think that language is helpful at all. Um, what does Jesus say here? He says that if you give in to anger and you let it infect your heart like a cancer, then you are in danger of hell. And notice he says nothing about the future. Hell in the here and now. You know, I think we get mixed up, in particular in the kind of Western post-Protestant kind of church moment. We, I don't think we realize just how true it is that the life to come, whatever you think about heaven and hell, the life to come is a continuation of the trajectory that you're already on in this life. So who you will become and the life that you will experience forever is a continuation of who you are now and the life that you are living into in the here and now. The reality is that most people who don't follow Jesus now and don't want to follow Jesus now, don't want to live the way of Jesus now, would be miserable in the kingdom of heaven. Because the kingdom of heaven is where Jesus is king. 
It is, by definition, the rule and the reign. It is where we live under Jesus' vision, not secularism or ours or our friends, Jesus' vision of human flourishing in relationship with God and each other. If you don't want to live that way now, the odds are you would really not want to live that way forever. People who end up in hell are not the kind of people who would, I don't think, or even could enjoy the kingdom of heaven. It's not so much that God sends people to hell as much as we have free will, we have a decision to make every single day, what life do I choose, what way do I choose, the kingdom of heaven or something else. And your future is a continuation of every single decision that you make. Dallas Willard would say this little line, hell is just the best that God can do for some people. The reality is you have far more responsibility for your life here and later than ever before. My point is that what Jesus is getting at here, sure, there are implications for the future and life after death, but the main point here is life before death and the here and the now. And he's saying, listen, if you give in to anger, you are in danger of the fire of hell. Now, this is a bit tricky because it feels like a pretty heavy and somber warning, am I right? For something, anger, or like calling somebody stupid, that like most of us in the room do on a regular basis, or we kind of write off as trivial. I love this from R.T. France, who's one of the top scholars on the Gospel of Matthew. He writes, quote, Jesus' pronouncement is thus that ordinary insults may betray an attitude of contempt, more on that in a minute, which God takes extremely seriously. The totally unexpected conclusion in hellfire comes as a shocking jolt to the complacency of the hearer who might well have chuckled over the incongruous image of a person being tried at the Supreme Court, nonetheless, for anger or for a conventional insult, like we're here before, you know, the Supreme Court because you called your roommate stupid, only to be pulled up short by the saying's conclusion, the fire of hell. Meaning you could hear this as a first century Jew or a 21st century Portlander and chuckle to yourself, oh, come on, Jesus. I mean, I know it's not good to call people an idiot, um, but like, it's no big deal. I mean, like, okay, I know it's wrong. Like, I won't do it this week. And then you realize, whoa, the fire of hell? Wow, this anger that I carry around in my heart and that comes out of my mouth, actually, that is a really big deal. And God takes it really seriously, and the end result of that is hell on earth, much less hell forever. Now, before we move on, let's just take a step back. Uh, Jesus' teaching here is just brilliant. So if you're new to Bridgetown, we just think that Jesus was the most intelligent human being to ever live, and a brilliant teacher. We think he was more than just a brilliant teacher, uh, but we think he his insight into the human condition, I think, is so profound. I've just been sitting in this all week. And so there are layers to what Jesus is doing. don't even have time for all of them. Layer one is pretty straightforward. Jesus is saying that murder comes from the place in the heart that we've all been to, the same place that an insult comes from or a snide comment or a sarcastic dig at your mom, where that comes from the same place. There's heart posture of anger, we'll talk about it in a minute, and contempt. And we need to eliminate this kind of anger because if we eliminate this kind of anger, you eliminate murder altogether. And so that's why Jesus does not command, you know, you do not get angry here, but the writers of the New Testament pick up Jesus' teaching and they do. For example, Ephesians chapter 1 or chapter 4, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, Brawling and slander, along with every form of malice, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Or Colossians 3, you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Notice what's at the top of the list. Anger, rage, malice. Notice the progression, exact same as Matthew 5. Slander and filthy language from your lips. Or here's another one, James 1. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Write it down, tweet it, tattoo it, don't actually. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Jesus and the writers of the New Testament over and over make the point that we need to eliminate this kind of unhealthy, toxic anger. So that's kind of the surface level. But at a deeper layer, 
Jesus is doing something even more helpful than saying, hey, don't get angry. Because if that's all Jesus said here was, hey, everybody, anger is really lousy, don't get angry. Then most of us would hear that and think, oh, you're right, anger is really lousy. I want to try really hard this week to not get mad. So let's go out and try really hard to not get mad. And we get 3% better until Thursday, and then we're back where we started. What Jesus is doing, I think, is far more helpful. Well, that's not a bad thing to do, to try, but what he's doing here is far more helpful. He's more like a doctor, and his diagnosis here is of the human condition and of the vicious cycle that we all, some more than others, but we all get sucked into with anger. And here is the vicious cycle, as best I can tell from Jesus' teaching and sitting in it all week. Here it is in kind of seven stages. Stage one, we get angry. As I said, our will is thwarted. Somebody does something, and we're mad, and what we wanted to happen did not. And so now we're mad, and we give in to it. Sometimes it's a conscious decision. Most of the time it's not. It's subconscious. Stage two, our ego is wounded. We take it as an insult on our person, and we say things like, you know, how could she do this to me? That is a loaded phrase, by the way. Stage three is we play the self-righteous victim. It's a short step from stage one to stage two. Our generation has fine-tuned this to an art form. Am I right? There's all sorts of there's fascinating reasons for that. We grew up, uh, particularly if you grew up in Portland, there's this progressive worldview that we grew up into. The progressive kind of leftist narrative started on behalf of those on the margins, actually followers of Jesus were involved in a lot of it early on, and it was around injustice, started for those on the margins, and the whole mantra was those in power are corrupt. And so the whole progressive agenda that you and I grew up in is power is corrupt, power is tear down the power, like tear it down, right? One protest at a time, which is why we're in such a pickle right now because now the leftists and the progressives are the ones in power. And so it's a huge conundrum. It was part of the last election cycle was a reaction to that. I digress. My point is, we grow up in this world, all power is corrupt, and we buy into this, we're almost conditioned to think of ourselves as the innocent victim and everybody else is the guilty perpetrator. And so we want to think of everything in black and white, good and evil. I'm the good guy. He or she is the bad guy. We hate gray. We hate to own our part. We hate to like say, yeah, we had a disagreement and actually it was like, you know, 49% my fault. Um, we don't want to say that. We want to write off him or her and we want to claim I'm the innocent victim, you're the oppressor. Everybody's the oppressor now. Like everybody is the oppressor. Like we want to write people off, whatever it is. And then what happens from there, it's a short step to stage four and this is where it starts to get really nasty. We give our heart over to contempt. Now, contempt is one of the root issues in the human condition. Contempt comes out of this place of self-righteousness where you think of yourself as better than the person who wronged you. Now, a lot of the time, that's not true. You're not actually better. You're just a different kind of messed up. But in order for you to justify the illusion in your mind's eye that you're better than them, and to buy into that lie so that you feel good about yourself and not bad about yourself because everything is about you feeling good about yourself. In order to buy that, you have to write not off not just their behavior but their character. You have to now make a judgment call on their whole person. You have to skew reality to view them through a distorted lens where you have to see them as evil and yourself as good, them as guilty and yourself as innocent, which means you have to highlight all of their weaknesses and ignore all of their strengths and then do the opposite to yourself. You know what I'm talking about? Are you convicted right now? Good. Um, and then what happens is you give over to contempt, which is when you start to look down your nose at somebody else. Not just their behavior, their character. Now, in a city like Portland, uh, most of the time, this comes in the form of snobbery. All sorts of snobbery, am I right? Can we just talk about coffee? <laughs> Some of you just have no idea what you drink every morning, and we look down at you. I just, I just want to say, 
we look down on you because we're better than you because we have good taste in coffee. I travel and speak a little bit, and I, I, I've learned the hard way, never insult, unless if I'm in San Francisco, basically coffee's terrible everywhere, okay? Um, but I've learned the hard way, you never insult other cities' coffee. It's almost all lousy, but it's like they take it personal. Like, do you realize how bad your coffee is? And they don't laugh. They're like, how could you? <laughs> I come to Portland, you will know. That's, that's snobbery, that's contempt. There's urban snobbery. Those of us that live in the city and we ride our bicycle everywhere, we think that we're better than people who live out in suburbia. Because we are, but that's a whole other teaching. Um, there's suburban snobbery against, you know, the urban elites or whatever. There's the snobbery in particular of the educated and the intellectual who look down their nose at those rural folk who voted for he who must not be named. How could they? We're so much smarter. We're so much. And then, ironically, what a lot of, because I know some people on the other side don't realize, is there a snobbery going the other direction. Those urban elites, they don't know anything about the real America. We're the ones. They're so out of touch. We are kind of, but that's, so you see what I'm saying? There's contempt all over the place. Right, left, rich, poor, urban, suburban, people with good taste in coffee. Other people, there's <laughs> contempt all over the place. And this is where we laugh, but it's where we look down our nose. And from there, we move to stage five, which is where it leaks out of our mouth in a kind of verbal violence. An insult, sarcastic comment, a dig, a gossip conversation with a coworker or somebody in your community or at church, a tweet, those of you with less control, a Facebook rant. <laughs> Please keep coming to church if that's you. And what happens? Stage six, hell on earth. We harm other people. We harm ourself, our own soul. We harm our community, our church, our workplace, our city. Anger left unchecked is toxic. The terrifying thing about anger is that we are hurt by other people just by the anger itself. So if, I'm, if I find out that one of you is angry with me, I hear through the grapevine, oh, you know, Alex Rettman is mad at me. He doesn't have to say anything to me. He doesn't have to criticize me. He doesn't have to gossip about me. He doesn't have to write an open letter to Bridgetown Church about me. All he, ha all I he has to do is be angry and I'm hurt just by the knowledge of his anger, right? When you get married, some of you aren't there yet, you will discover how terrifying this is. For the first, you can tell you're a young married couple because you only get in trouble for what you say and do. When, you, when you've been married for a little while, you get in trouble for everything. <laughs> and you get in trouble for what's in your heart because you read each other, um, language or no language, and anger at your spouse. This is why it's so toxic in my own life. Um, man, it's... It's damaging, and it's destructive, wreaking hell on earth. And then out of there, if we're not careful, most of us kind of plug the hole there, but if we're not careful, stage seven is, who knows, domestic abuse, violence, um, divorce, betrayal, so on, murder, so on and so forth. So do you see the vicious cycle? To clarify, if you're new to the Jesus thing, it's not, a video, not like a video game where you want to get to the next level, okay? It's not like... I made it to level six. Nope, uh-uh, you, you're missing the point, right? You don't want to make it to the next level. Jesus is saying, listen, it all, all of this starts when you get angry, and there in that moment, conscious or subconscious, you give in to it. Anger is like a leech on your skin. If you, if you deal with it right away, it's painful but doable. But the longer it is in your heart, the deeper it goes and the more destructive it is is Jesus is saying, don't give in to anger. If you go down that road, it will lead you straight to hell. So on that chipper note, how, how do we break the vicious cycle of anger? Well, I love Jesus. He goes right from kind of the heady and the intellect to write really two creative, practical, small steps you and I can take to move forward in our apprenticeship to him into the reality of the kingdom. Here's the first one, hypothetical scenario, 23. Therefore, here's what you do. 
If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. So this is actually kind of funny. Um, it's a hypothetical scenario. Where is Jesus teaching from? Anybody know for the Sermon on the Mount? Galilee, on the Sea of Galilee, up in the north, all right, in Israel. The altar, there's one and only altar in um, first century Israel, and it was at the temple in Jerusalem, right? So all of Jesus' hearers would have, oh yeah, the altar, the temple, Jerusalem. So the hypothetical scenario is you're a farmer or whatever, you're a peasant up in Galilee, and you make your annual pilgrimage down to the temple in Jerusalem. You walk the 80 miles with your sacrifice, which was not like, you know, a line item in your budget and push pay. It was not numbers on a computer screen. It was an animal. Animal was currency in the ancient world. So it was a goat most of the time. You walk to Jerusalem with your goat. You go to the temple. You walk up to the altar. There's the high priest. You're about to make your sacrifice. And all of a sudden you remember, oh my gosh, I'm crossways with my neighbor. We're both farmers. We have a well that's right on the border of our property. And we like don't agree on the water rights for whatever. Oh, Oh my goodness. So in Jesus' scenario, he's saying, listen, here's what you do. You just leave Fido or whatever there with the high priest, and you book it 80 miles all the way back home, knock on your neighbor's door, hey, we need to talk. I'm so sorry. Let's hash this out. Hopefully you hash it out. Then you run the 80 miles all the way back to Jerusalem. Thank you, Mr. High Priest. Fido, I'm not vegan. Let's go. All right? And you, and you go from, Jesus is saying, that's what you do. Now, we've, it's funny, but it's funny because it's extreme. And Jesus is saying, that's how serious it is that you and I reconcile. Now, any first century Jew um, hearing this would have thought immediately of the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis, which is a story about anger that was left to fester that finally ended in murder, brother on brother, or fratricide. It's a story about the human condition as old as time itself. And Jesus is saying we have to deal with this root problem in the human condition. And Jesus is saying something more that we need to get with the Cain and Abel story, with this here, with the temple. This is all intentional language. He's saying that your relationship with God is tied up with your relationship with other people. Like it or not. So you might be here tonight, you might feel distant from God. You might feel in worship like, I don't get it. You might go to pray and feel like a concrete barrier in the sky. And there are all sorts of potential reasons for that, that if you and I were to have coffee, we could talk about. One potential reason may or may not be true of you it could be that you're not at peace with somebody, in particular a brother or a sister, and therefore you're not at peace with God. I had to do a lot of repentance the last few days, in particular with my wife. I kept thinking about that line in Peter's letter. To husbands, be careful how you treat your wives or it may, quote, hinder your prayers. So how I treat my lovely wife, as most of you know is sick right now, how I treat her has a direct line of effect on my prayers. My relationship with T is tied up in my relationship with God, is tied up in my relationship with you. And there's no way around that. So Jesus is saying, you're not right? Go and deal with it. Basically the same thing with one little twist in the next story. 25, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taken you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, it's another hypothetical scenario. In this one, two people get into some kind of a legal dispute and are literally on the road to an appointment with the court. Every village, every town had a, a court made up of the village or town elders. Two people are on en route to that, and Jesus' advice is, hey, here's what you do. You settle out of court. Don't go to court over it. This is like if somebody were suing you today. Otherwise, here's what's at stake. You might end up in prison. There's a thing in the ancient world we don't have anymore because it was so illogical, but it was called debt prison, where if there was a disagreement over money and you lost the case, you were put into prison until you or your family could pay off the debt. 
For obvious reasons, a lot of people died in prison. Jesus is saying, you do not want that. Think about what all is at stake. So go and deal with your dispute and deal with it quickly. And that's the caveat to the second one. Deal with it quickly. Don't let it fester. Nine times out of ten, we do the exact opposite. If you're anything like me, maybe this just makes some, I don't know, passive-aggressive or immature, but if I'm in a like, dispute with somebody, I don't talk about it with them openly and honestly until I absolutely have to. I put it off for as long as possible. And guess what happens? Does it get better or worse? Yeah, nine times out of ten, it gets worse, way worse, right? Once, maybe one out of ten, it goes away. But the odds are not in your favor. Most of the time, if it's left to fester in my heart or in theirs, by the time we actually sit down to talk about it, we're not rational anymore. We're emotional. We're like bleeding out of our eye. We're just like, ah, fire, and you are evil, and I'm the innocent victim, and how could you? And like, we're just like, it's so stupid. We should have just sat down and said, that was lousy. Well, yeah, but you did this. You're right, I did that. Okay, and work it out. Now, it's not always so easy or simple. But Jesus' point here, I think it's just great advice. Hey, deal with it and deal with it quickly. As Paul says later, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So to summarize, what is Jesus saying? Well, basically, to break the vicious cycle of anger, if you're at odds with somebody, go to them, make peace with them as best as you can, and, and don't, like, delay or procrastinate. Do it right away. Really simple, huh? Now, it raises all sorts of questions. Uh, what if they don't listen to me? What if they won't take coffee with me? What if they want me to give them $50,000 and drag me into court anyway? All sorts of questions that Jesus does not have time to nuance out. Go study on your own. The point, though, is pretty simple, right? But here's the thing. Is that easy to do? No, it's easy to understand for most of us, that is not easy to do, especially in our cultural moment, um, for a few reasons. I think the main one is that our culture actually does not agree with Jesus of Nazareth here. Our culture is basically saying the exact opposite to us. There's so much anger right now, if not f and contempt, if not full-on rage in our culture. Of course, the worst example is a mass shooting or a terrorist attack, but this last election cycle was a case study in anger and contempt. And there's so much anger right now over just the brokenness of our nation and our world, over systematic racism, which is still a gaping wound in our society, over the widening gap between the rich and the poor, over the urban-suburban kind of widening gap between the two Americas, over globalism and nationalism, over secularism and the church. There's just so much anger. You see it in the rise of profanity even over the last decade or two, so much profanity. I'm shocked at the profanity in the church from followers of Jesus. And I don't, I don't mean that in like a I judge you kind of way. I kind of do, but I'm working on it. <laughs> I don't get how people follow Jesus, read the New Testament, and then, like, cuss and call. I don't, I don't get it. And I think there's more at stake. I think for a lot of 20-somethings or 30-somethings, like, cussing is just code for, I grew up in the church, but I'm not a legalist. <laughs> like, okay, you're not really that holy either, but all right. Oh, that was so mean. The contempt there. The contempt in my heart. The self-righteousness because I think I'm better than you because I don't cuss, which is mostly because I was homeschooled. But um, <laughs> but there's, there's more there than that. I think that profanity, dirty language, I, I think it is the symptom of a deeper issue, and that is contempt the cynicism in our city, the anger, the contempt, the you stupid, there's something there under the surface of our heart that our culture says, give into that. Let that anger fuel you to fight off injustice. And a lot of the time, the fight is against something that we need to fight, whether it's systematic racism or whatever. I'm into the fight. But is anger the way forward? At what cost? And there's very little that can be done with anger that can't be done better without it. So this flies in the face. Your culture is literally saying, you need to get mad, and then you need to go online and get all of your friends and family mad, because that's how we change the world. We all get mad and, like, 
type a sentence into a device made by a slave. That's how we change injustice in the world. It's not really working, is it? There's something there. This is so countercultural. And even if you don't buy that, even if you think, oh, no, I, no, I'm not into the anger thing, I think as a general critique, and this is true of me, of millennial culture, not all of you are millennials, but a lot of you are, um, I think as a general rule really allows you at relational conflict. Something about growing up with, I don't know, Wi-Fi and a smartphone and some, with no parents, I don't know what it is, but most of us are really lousy at, hey, can we talk about this um, and openly, honestly, saying here's the rub and where we own our part and we're rational, not crazy emotional, and we forgive. Most of us just aren't very good at that. A few of you are. We love you. I'm really good at sarcasm. <laughs> not too bad at gossip. Um, I'm pretty good at shame. Like, I can really make you feel guilty. I'm, it's kind of an art form. I don't even, it's like a gift I didn't even know I had. <laughs> I'm not that great at open, honest, loving dialogue and disagreement. So all that to say, this is, you guys, this is so against the flow of our culture. But if we give in, do we want to, like, think about our culture. It is toxic right now. Do we want to be that? Do we want to transmute that to our children someday, to the next generation? No. We want to break the cycle in our own life. Do we want the church to be a place of anger? No. We want to break the cycle. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Practicing the Way, a simple, beautiful way to integrate formation into your church or group. All our resources are completely free, thanks to the generosity of The Circle, a community of monthly givers who partner with us to see spiritual formation integrated into the church at large. Special thanks for today's episode goes to Ann from Dublin, California, Evan from Troutdale, Oregon, Parker from Dallas, Texas, Terry from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and Alexander from Fresno, California. Thank you all so much. To join the circle or learn more about running a practice in your church or community, visit practicingtheway.org.